Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 16th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, Catherine, uh, greetings from Atlanta. I was down in Atlanta today, and I saw the new scooters that are seemingly just uh, and time's just laying everywhere. Are those in your neck of the woods, or are those just strictly downtown? Oh, yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. <laughs> I had I don't know how I've missed this, but I saw them for the first time. I want to learn more about how they function, because it said it, you could get started for a dollar. I was like, you know, from where I parked to where the Mercedes-Benz Stadium was, I might have picked one up for $2 just to uh, have the experience or so. So I'll have to learn more about it. But, um, you know, we cover politics, not uh, urban scooter talk. So um, I'll (laughs) I'll get us to what we're going. And um, uh, so let's start off. uh, Big news right at the end of the week. Paul Manafort um, has reached a plea deal uh, with prosecutors. And, of course, people are sure that has something to do with the Mueller investigation um, and how that will affect that. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on um, this plea deal and how this will change things, because this is now in addition to Michael Cohen. Yeah, first of all, uh, I seriously don't know why Manafort even bothered to go through with the first trial. Uh, Surely surely he didn't think he had beat the rap or something like that. Perhaps, I don't know, he thought, uh, he would get a pardon from Trump, but uh, that that did not happen. And of course, with the guilt, uh, with with being guilty on eight counts in the first trial, uh, he he could easily see what was about to happen in the second trial. Uh, you know, you guys remember recently when Trump was talking about how awful Cohen was and talking about what a great guy Manafort is and how awful it was, what was happening to him. And I, I wonder what Trump's going to say now. Um, but but this does change some things uh, in answer to your question, David. I mean, think back to June of 2016 and the, the, the infamous Trump Tower meeting. Well, Manafort was in the room, and Manafort was the campaign chairman when Trump was nominated, when the party platform was changed to make nice with Russia. Uh, So this talk that Giuliani and some of these guys are doing about Manafort's uh, legal troubles having nothing to do with, with, with Trump is probably not going to fly now. Um, this is so far the biggest fish from the campaign itself uh, to flip. And, and no way is this good news for Trump, no matter what they say. What do you think, Catherine? I, I agree. Um, I did read a piece today that suggested that perhaps um, in addition to Trump, that this might be, uh, there might be some other big fish in this um, agreement, maybe some Russians. So, uh yeah, this is mm. good for uh, Trump. And I have the same question. Why did he bother spending all that money on his attorneys and going through that trial if he was going to split? It just seems strange. I wonder if there's some something that happened, you know, recently that uh, that made him change his, you know, made him decide to turn. What mm. do you think, David? Well, using it. Using a sports analogy, maybe the first trial was one half of the game and the second the second trial was going to be the second half of the game. Since the first half turned out so poorly for him, maybe he figured out that it was only get worse and maybe some of the other charges he was more exposed on 
because um, he did seem pretty resolute. And uh, you're talking about Trump's defense team. Rudy Giuliani kept talking about how he would tell the truth, tell the truth, and all the releases talked about how Paul Manafort would tell the truth. Well, in a release after he um, agreed with prosecutors, the truth was taken out. Um, so they took that line out that Paul Manafort would tell the truth, and that was pretty telling. Um, I just – I wonder um, – maybe we'll find out the question, because this is the question I've had since I've learned more about Paul Manafort initially and then now about these charges uh, since Donald Trump's become president is Paul Manafort had these ties to Russia and the Ukraine and some of those other countries over in Eastern Europe before running Donald Trump, Trump's campaign. So my question's been, did the Russians kind of help put him in place? Did um, – or did um, you know Donald Trump get him because he already had ties with Russians and he just wanted a guy that fit in? Or is this just a coincidence? To me, that's a kind of the piece of the puzzle because it looks like his ties to Russia, Donald Trump's, previous ties to Russia with the Miss Universe pageant and the hotel room and everything, they seem to be a little bit exclusive of each other, but then the campaign ties Russia, Manafort, Trump all together, at least being involved at some level. I have no idea exactly what the involvement is. So how did that all come together? Tim, any thoughts? Well, I keep going back to that meeting, not just Trump could have a problem right now, but Trump's son was in that meeting, and Trump's son-in-law was in that meeting. Man, we are really tightening the noose uh, around that family. Uh, I mean, uh, this is this is this is another bad week for Donald for Donald Trump. No matter what Donald Trump has to say about it. Um, I still am scratching my head, though, wondering why Manafort went through all of everything like Catherine said and paid all this yeah. money out and stuff. I mean, the man is 69 years old. Uh, the The only thing I can keep coming back to is maybe he was hoping for a, for a pardon. Uh, but <laughs> for some strange reason, no pardon ever came. And... Uh, Gonna be some interesting times coming before the end of this year because uh, yeah, I, I got a feeling Bob Mueller's got a lot of stuff now, a lot of stuff. Yeah, Catherine, what are your thoughts on how this all comes together, if you will? Because th- there's something there that's just um, very coincidental or beyond. I, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, even though I play one on the radio sometimes um i I really don't (laughs) i don't really know like how this is all i I don't really have a sense of how it's all going to come together like like tim said i think it's going to be really interesting to see and uh, you know um you know how trump will react and how uh his base will react and how the rest of the Republicans will react and if the Democrats will um, stand up, you know, depending on what happens, how they will, how everybody will react, I think is going to be interesting. And also the timing with the election and um, the Supreme Court nomination. I mean, there's just so many uh, balls in play. It's really going to be interesting to watch how it all uh, shakes out, I think. David, you know, in the last month, Bob Mueller's investigation has reeled in the president's personal attorney and his the former chairman of his campaign as to cooperate with him. He's got to be getting a lot of stuff. These guys know where a lot of the bodies are. That's, you know, kind of a crude way to put it, but it's the truth. Uh, there's going to be a lot of damage done done here. Uh, Donald Trump had better hope with his best hope 
that election night goes well for him, because if it doesn't, wow. I can't imagine yeah, that it's Catherine, going to. It doesn't seem <laughs> no, lean enough that way. We may talk about some no. Senate races and what and what all in a little bit, but um, one thing, uh, you Catherine, you had mentioned the Supreme Court nomination. Of course, Brett Kavanaugh has his own allegations that came out um, this week, but then the fact that this kind of throws more illegitimacy on the Trump presidency. Um, Do you think that this will have any or or more bearing or whatever um, as the other allegations and possibly pause, um, even for a week, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. You you mean what what impact will have on... Well, yeah, well, well, I mean, will there actually... Will those will those hearings will there you know hit the pause button between the two things the the you know the the whole election you know having a little more cloud over it which I know that's a little harder to quantify and then of course the personal allegations that came up against Brad Kavanaugh's past that Diane Feinstein kind of turned over and um, has asked him to you know pause the nomination process. Well, and now the person who. Uh made those allegations has come forward and has written a letter so i i haven't seen it yet but it was um it was in the on the bbc today um i think all these things are gonna uh, are gonna be in play uh i'm not sure how they how they'll affect the election um i think they can only hurt trump though and and the republicans I mean, I don't think yeah. the Republicans will care about those allegations, but I think voters care about allegations like that. Yeah, I think you're right. That the, I mean, because honestly, um, with you know, we saw what happened with Clarence Thomas, and um, that was kind of in a different light, and that was in a much less politicized time than we are now. And then um, you put it in this politicized time, uh, it's hard to see how it would. You know, pause the whole thing, but you never know. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it's going to stop anything. If they have the votes to go forward, they're going forward with it. Uh, you did uh, make allusion to it. Republican voters really do care a whole lot about the Supreme Court, and yeah. uh, th- those voters are not going to be happy at all if their uh, nominee doesn't get through. Um. So, so I, I, I think I think it's going to go forward uh, uh, unless a lot more comes out uh, than than already has. Yes. Um. Well, let's talk about one more subject before our guest Stephen Levitsky comes on. I think I was remiss not to mention that early on. We're very excited for him to talk about his uh, book here in about um, seven minutes into the podcast, but um. We had, of course, it's hurricane season, that time of year, unfortunately, where natural disasters are going to strike um, different parts of our coastlines. And um, uh, Hurricane Florence uh, struck the Carolina coastline, and was go- we knew it was imminent and going to strike. And Donald Trump took that moment in time to kind of re-bring up uh, what most people would consider a failure in Puerto Rico and then begin to dispute death tolls. I mean, we've had fake news. Now we're having fake death tolls. Um, Catherine, why in the world did he do this? I I don't know. I think it was – I don't know if it was a distraction from everything else that was going on or if he was trying to – point out that you know FEMA was ready for um, Hurricane Florence just like they'd been ready for I don't even remember the name of that um, hurricane last year but Harvey was the one in Texas that Harvey yeah yeah Yeah. I just I don't understand how he um, why he thinks that this kind of um, these kind of comments are helpful uh, at any time, uh, you know, 
that many people died, whether it was, you know, whatever the reasons were, there's, there is some uh, blame for our, for the, for the handling of the hurricane, whether they actually, I mean, I think the question is they didn't actually die from the hurricane. They died from the aftermath of the hurricane. Well, what, what the heck difference does it make? I don't know. I, I just think he, uh, I, I, as usual, I think it was a distraction from other things that were going on. Yeah. Uh, t- Tim, I don't really think he even understands that, you know, the death tolls doesn't have to be the actual, mm. you know, a, you know, blunt force of the original event. It can be the after effects. But really, if you look at it, to me, that's actually kind of more on uh, relief efforts than the actual storm would be. If the storm hits yep. and people have no way to get off and just the actual storm just causes catastrophic deaths, that's really something that no one could be blamed for. But then if you can't get electricity and clean water and medical supplies to, in this case, an island in a timely fashion and more deaths are created out of that, that's actually a bigger indictment of the um, uh, of the government or FEMA, whatever it may be. So him arguing over those deaths really, really shined a poor headlight. Uh, on this situation. Well, look, his administration has been roundly criticized, of course, about the Puerto Rican response. And Donald Trump just simply does not like to be criticized for anything. And his plan when he's criticized for anything is to snap back, go to name calling or or make up an enemy, or or, or something. He just won't let things like that go. So he develops a false narrative in which failure down there suddenly turns into um, great success. Uh, And, and of course, he don't mind lying about the loss of life or lying about anything else. I mean... uh, his number of lies, according to the Washington Post, surpassed 5,000 in the last couple of days uh, since his announcement, you know, three years ago that he's going to run for president. That's just the way this man is. I mean, he, he just – he lives in a, a delusional uh, a delusional world. But see, to this point, it has worked for him. In his mind, he has never lost doing this type of thing. Uh, It's uh, it's not important whether the Puerto Rico thing was a success, as long as he believes it was. Man, what a bizarre guy we have in the White House. My goodness. No kidding. Yeah, and, and you know, unfortunately, we probably know that this won't be the the last hurricane or natural or uh, tropical storm of the season. And this is going to play itself out through this campaign cycle. And I mean, if hurricane Katrina, the playbook is if you don't respond to storms appropriately, it can hurt you. And, um, you know, George W. Bush, other than the comment of great job Brownie, he didn't really try to dispute death tolls and do any, and he never went down to a hurricane site and, and shoot rolls of paper towels like basketballs. I mean, Donald Trump handled, as far as what he's physically done and said, he's handled this worse, and he keeps bringing it up. Uh, I mean, it, his advisors obviously have no control over him, or they would say, look at the ninth, or the 2006 playbook from George W. Bush and how this was handled. Um, Catherine... Is this just another sign of he is in every way, shape, and form his own man? Uh, <laughs> I guess you could say that. I, I don't know. I just think he uh, – I think Tim's absolutely right. He cannot stand to be criticized, and his response is always to blame someone else or to call who's ever criticizing him a liar or change the um, narrative. He should have learned from George W. Bush 
which is, you know, a strange series of words for me to put together. But, (laughs) yeah, I I just hope everyone's safe uh, as we go forward into this, you know, next few days. And um, Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, most definitely. You know what's a sad thing is he didn't learn that lesson earlier in life. I mean, I know I've had it happen in my own life, and y'all probably don't make mistakes. Y'all might not have had this um, uh, life lesson, but, you know, I screwed up before, made a mistake, and in whatever form I made it, I actually owned up to it. And I'm not saying I always owned up to it. I'm sure sometimes I wanted to avert blame because we're only human. But I remember those times in which I said, yeah, I could do that better. I made mistakes. And I got a lot of credit for owning up to the mistake. And I think that happens for a lot of people. They actually own up to it, and people are so impressed because, unfortunately, there are people like Donald Trump that never want to own up to a mistake. And people – get so tired of that that they actually appreciate that. And, and it's a shame that he hasn't seen that lesson because there are leaders of the free world that have said, I've made a mistake, and um, people have forgiven them for them. And, and actually I think sometimes that helps their overall leadership brand. Tim, uh, I guess, do you believe he's missed this whole lesson? This is the Trump playbook playing out. I I maintain that. He was criticized, therefore he's going to fight back. Doesn't matter what he was criticized for. Doesn't matter if there's overwhelming and, you know, close the book evidence that he was in the wrong. He's not going to sit there and take it from anyone. He's going to snap back. It doesn't matter what the subject was about. It doesn't matter if there was an epic failure down there on that island and 3,000 people died and uh, 700,000 bottles of water was left on the airport tarmac when people couldn't even get fresh water and stuff like that. It it doesn't matter about things like that. Donald Trump is always going to snap back he did it to the Gold Star Father, and he's done it to the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. He's doing it to a Pulitzer Prize-winning author right now, and, and it, that's just the way it's going to be. Definitely. Well, let's go ahead and get into kind of our biggest topic of the evening for the three of us, and then we'll see if we need to – Um, pause at any point into it over the past two weeks we've had two um, prognosticators that really look at elections and see which elections will be the tightest one republican scott elliott um one democrat uh last week daniel the uh the i'm probably saying that wrong and i'm thinking i'm putting the t in because of his twitter account well actually let's pause that and we'll get back to there Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine, um, Dr. Stephen Levitsky. Welcome, Dr. Levitsky. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, glad to have you on the – yeah, glad to have you on the Kudzu Vine. Well, um, we had already kind of uh, previewed a little bit, and actually had mentioned it last week that you'd be coming on. You just authored a book called How, Democracy Die, How Democracies Die. We're real excited about that, and I'm going to kind of ask you a two-part question. One, kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself – And then kind of it can lead into what prompted you to write this book. Sure. Uh, I'm a political scientist. I've been a specialist in Latin American politics for about a quarter of a century. spent most of my career studying how democracies die in Latin America and other parts of the world. I'm not an expert, never been an expert in American politics, um, but I have a lot of experience studying authoritarian regimes and democracies that don't work well and democracies that fail. And uh, what happened was that during the over the last few years, but particularly during the 2016 election campaign, I began to see behavior in American politics among American politicians that I'd never seen before in the United States, but I had seen before in my area of study in Latin America, and it started to get me worried. And I had some talks in the hallway with. Uh, my colleague, Daniel Ziblatt, who's an expert on European politics, and particularly the politics of the 1920s and 1930s in, in Europe, in, uh, Italy and Germany, 
and democratic failures during that period, and he had exactly the same response. And so we started to uh, to talk and to and to write. Yes, and that makes so much more sense now after listening to your book, and that's going to lead me into my next question. Um, to me, one thing that really sets your book apart is that historical information, yours with Latin America, your colleagues with um, earlier 20th century European history, and um, so many books that are coming out now are very many ways current event books about the Trump administration, politics, and this part of the 21st century. But your book, I believe, actually could be almost like a textbook, something that's going to have a longer longevity because of um, having the historical context of the other nations. But my question is, how has that been received by people that are expecting a current events book about just America 2016 to the present, and they get this um, long view of other countries? Um. Well, we haven't heard. We, we a lot of people complain about our book for a lot of reasons, but not so much that. I mean, if people want to get the inside scoop in the Trump administration, luckily they've got other places to go. They can read Bob Woodward's book. They can read Fire and Fury. There, there are tons of books that they can read to get the the sort of inside scoop, the dirt on the Trump administration. That's not our book. We we want to put uh, the, what's going on in a much broader perspective. We actually think that Trump's really not the uh, the the root of the problem, the root of the problem lie deeper than that and really require looking back at American history. So it's it's a little little bit of a deeper book than uh than Fire and Fury and those sorts of books, but um I think a lot of readers are, are looking for that. I mean there's a there's, these are no, nobody, none of us, certainly not me, ever thought we would be asking these sorts of questions today. We no one thought we'd be worrying about our democracy. I always took American democracy for granted. I always figured no matter how recklessly we behave, no matter how stupidly we behave, no matter how stupidly our politicians behave, that we couldn't possibly break American democracy. And so this is new for all of us. And there are a lot of people who want to, to read seriously about this stuff. And so hopefully our book um, is, uh, is, is at least provides part of, of what people are looking for. Yes, and, and don't think that's a criticism on my part. I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, I listened to about a third of your book, and our one of our original co-hosts, who's also a political science um, professor at a college here locally in Georgia, um, I, t- I texted him and said, you've got to listen to this book, A, and B, you could use this book in your classroom. It's that good, <laughs> and it would have that kind of um, you know scope and impact, if you will, because of those historical parts. So just want to let you know that. Um, well, my next question, you get into um, uh, talking about in the past. You mentioned Roosevelt. I believe, I believe you also mentioned other places um, later, I guess, uh, um, Merrick Garland. Supreme Court nominations and how politicized those become and how that impacts our democracies. Well, we're now in another situation where um, we've got a, a Supreme Court nomination that's uh, not exactly – you know, lining up cleanly. It's not a clean process. Um, how do you think America should handle um, Supreme Court nominations, including this one, and maybe ones that are going to come forward in the next few years? Uh, it's really tough. Um, you know, we had for most of our history uh, a norm in which the um, the Senate and the opposition largely deferred to the president in uh, his nomination of, of Supreme Court justices. The 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 nominee had to be um had to be qualified, but as long as the nominee was qualified and wasn't perhaps too extremist, then um even if it was uh you know somebody to who's ideologically or, or politically closer to the president, if he qualified he would get the he would get approved. And you know, even even as recently as the Scalia nomination, which I think is under Reagan um, Scalia was a highly qualified nominee, obviously very conservative. Pretty sure he passed unanimously, and uh, you know that that allowed our Supreme Court to function, and it allowed us to 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 have a, a judicial branch that we that we more or less believed in. Now it's become incredibly politicized, um, and the the 
the norm of the Senate deferring to or the, and the opposition deferring to the president has completely been shattered. And now it, the, the opposition party and if the Senate, if the opposition controls the Senate, the belief is you've got to do anything necessary, any by any means necessary, block the nominee, uh, even if it's a moderate, because Merrick Garland was a, a centrist, a moderate. Um, and so it's becoming our system of checks and balances, which is a brilliant system, but a complex system, uh, does not work very well if there's not a minimum of restraint and a minimum of cooperation between the two parties. If the two parties go to war, use our institutions as weapons, partisan weapons against each other, as they have been over the last four, five, seven, eight years, um, our system of checks and balances, as brilliant as it is, um, won't work. It'll be totally dysfunctional. That's what we're seeing now. Yes. Well, the final question I have is uh, kind of looking forward to the future. We know that what we've had um, increasingly and what we have now as far as the way our democracy works with the two parties um, being so um, uncivil towards each other. Now, my Democratic bias may come out and blame one side more than the other, but it seems like, and you put in your book, that it seems like a lot of this started during the Clinton administration and then carried through. We've had elections where people have gotten less than 50 percent of the vote, um, which I guess didn't help matters. But then President Obama did and wasn't at times treated with uh, maybe a proper level of respect by the other side. So how do, where do we go from here? What could possibly be done to where we get to a higher level of decorum that we are, you know, not only been in the Trump administration, but for the past two or three administrations where sides can work together. I think what it's going to take, um, and people have different views on what the problem is, and if you have different views of what the problem is, then you have different views of what it takes to fix it. I think the problem is that our parties are so, so fear and loathe one another now, much, much more than 20, 30, 40 years ago, because they're divided along racial, cultural, and religious lines. That was never the case in the past. In the 1970s, there were evangelical Christians evenly distributed between the Democrats and Republicans. You had, uh, you had um, African Americans distributed between the two parties. You had um, racial conservatives on both sides. And it's only in the last 20, 20, 25 years that we are divided by religion, by race, and by culture, and that is really causing a lot of animosity. What needs to change, in my view, is that the Republican Party has to do what it said it was going to do after the 2012 election, which has become a more diverse party. The Republican Party has become, and almost has, has remained, I should say, an almost exclusively white and Christian party in a society that's becoming much, much more diverse. And as long as that's the case, I think our parties are going to are going to exhibit this kind of fear and loathing toward one another. When the Republicans make a shift and go after young people, women, Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, and become a more diverse party, I think the polarization between the two parties will be reduced, and the animosity and the fear and hatred will be reduced. That's that's the solution. I don't actually think we're that far from that. Yeah, I, I think you are definitely on to something, but, I mean, obviously it's not like fantasy football. The two parties can't get together and say, I'll trade you a Baptist and a Methodist for two agnostics. No, no, no. Um, what has to happen? be named later. So how do we get uh, folks to realign? If only it were that easy. Um, yeah. No, what, what has to happen is that the Republicans have to lose. Uh, a, 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 a white nationalist strategy like Trump adopted in 2016 has to fail. If they lose, if they get spanked electorally a couple of times in a row, maybe it's 2018 and 2020. If that happens, Republicans, nobody likes to lose. No politician likes to lose. That's the kick in the pants that will get them to, to change course, to change strategy. Yes, and I think the Republicans may have been on that road because there were people like Rance Priebus, that they wrote the 2012 report about how they needed to diversify, in particular, exactly. go after Latino voters, and then Donald Trump uh, built a wall in his mind and set a fire to that, um, and, and did set that party back in what they really was probably a, a noble goal. Well, I'm going to pass this yeah. thing over to Catherine with some of her questions. Catherine, I'm really enjoying your book. I, 
I just started reading it a couple days ago, but it's it's fascinating. It's a little depressing, I will admit. Um, but I think it's really interesting to look at the historical perspective and and sort of it 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 helps me to you know sort of put everything in perspective. I do have a question though. Um, I have a couple questions, but do you think that the um, sort of change in our um, sort of the media and the social networking and all this stuff has a pretty big impact on all of these things. I just feel like, I, I mean, I'm old. I, I, I first voted for president for um, Jimmy Carter the first time. So I've been through a lot of elections and a lot of campaigns and I just feel like um, there's, we have such a short term, such a short attention span now that I'm not sure people are willing to like, really think about what a candidate, what, what it means, what, what a specific candidate has to offer. It's just this quick, you know, Oh, I'm a Republican. So I'm voting for the Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm voting for the Democrat and nothing more than that. And I think you put, you picked up on it when you said that, that we all took our democracy for granted. I feel like we have taken our democracy for granted for way too long and now we're sort of reaping the the uh, rewards from that. What, what, have you thought about how the sort of information age has had an impact on all this? We have, or we've tried to. The um, political scientists and social scientists are just beginning to to really study seriously the effects of of social media. I mean, obviously, the the two thousand the impact of particularly of uh, not only social media, but fake news took all of us by surprise yeah. in 2016. So this is pretty new stuff, even though the Internet's not, not so new. Um, and so there is evidence coming out that um, exposure to a lot of social media, people who get a lot of their news from social media, does have the effect that a lot of us think it has. It does tend to polarize us even further. It tends to kind of stick us into an echo chamber. We only hear the views that we want to hear. Um, and, and in general, we tend to, whether if we're, if we're left of center, we get pulled to the left. If we're right of center, we get pulled to the right. And so it does have a polarizing effect. But a couple of things. First of all, it's not the underlying cause of the polarization. Societies, including our own society, if you go back to the 1790s or if you go back to the Civil War, societies are perfectly perfectly capable of becoming deeply divided without the internet right you don't the the deep the underlying divisions in our society are not being caused by social media they're being exacerbated by it and um i've got i'm at least somewhat optimistic maybe i'm naive but um we worried a lot about the effect of radio back in the 1930s we worried a lot about the effect of television back in the 1950s and 60s and societies and politics and even voters did find a way to adapt over time. So the new technology emerges, it's it kind of shakes things up and some people learn how to use it, and abuse it and it takes a little while to to come up with laws and regulations and even just norms to to adapt to them. But I think there's a pretty good chance that we'll adapt to these as well. But clearly we've been taken by surprise and we're we're we kind of have our pants down as a society a little bit. <laughs> um so you, you, I'm just trying trying to get. I sort of I'm trying to get a handle on where do we go next? Like how do we, you know? Yeah, I, I will admit I'm a I'm a dyed in the wool Democrat. I have been literally for my entire life. My parents were. I mean I, and I have you know very few Republican friends. I live in my own little echo chamber here in downtown Atlanta. I work for a nonprofit that's very. Um, very uh, polarized and gets itself in a lot of trouble. I mean, we don't get in trouble. A lot of people don't like us. Um, so where, how do we, you know, am I, am, do I have to reach across the hallway and talk to my Republican neighbors? Like what's the, what's the path? Uh, well, if I, if I knew the path, I would have a much better paying job than I have to, right now. Um, been, and I'll have another book lined up. Um, I think we're all we're all trying to figure out what to do. 
um, and some people are thinking about possible electoral forms, ways of of, of um, designing an electoral system that that is less polarizing. There's a system of ranked order voting that that some people are talking about and it's being tried out in Maine. Um, we actually it, had that in some, my hometown when I was a when I was a teenager, yeah. and it worked very well. We had a three party. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. It, it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a um, that's a total. It's not a panacea, but it, it would help. I mean, I think a, a, an end to gerrymandering would help a little bit. But it's true at this at this moment. I mean, if people, if individuals ask as citizens what they can do. Um, yeah, we all do have. We're we're in a very polarized moment. We're at a moment where, um, you know, the, the, there was a poll in 1960 that asked Americans would they be bothered if if their kid married somebody for the other party, and it was four or five percent of Americans said they would be upset if their kid married someone from another party in 1960. Today, it's 50 percent would be bothered if their kid married someone from the other party. That is way too polarized. We're at a we're at a place. Where one out of four voters for Donald Trump in 2016, according to exit polls, voters for Donald Trump said they did not believe the man was fit for the presidency, did not believe he was fit for the presidency, and yet still preferred him to the Democrat. We're at a place where for the last 18 months, according to Gallup polls, Republicans have a much more favorable view of Vladimir Putin than they do Hillary Clinton. That's really, really dangerous levels of polarization. So all of us as citizens do have to make an extra effort, I think. I mean, I don't think, you know, it's, ultimately it's not on our shoulders to solve the problem, but I think we're in a, we're in a dangerous place. And again, we do have to stop know, taking think, our democracy for granted. And we do have to I make... I think we do uh, have a responsibility. I mean, it's our okay. government. I'll right? grant like, you that. I, I, it's, there, there are parties, like, I, I mean, I feel like party isn't, of them, it's us, you know, it's part, I, I, I feel like it's partly my responsibility the way, I mean, in a very, in the, the very smallest way, but I, I mean, I think that that's part of the problem is that it's sort of always them, like that Republican Party or that Democratic Party, whereas if we, I think if we all took a little more um, uh, responsibility, not necessarily in a partisan way, but just that, I mean, I hear, hear a lot of people you know, they they think that there's nothing they can do. Well, they can elect people in their city councils who are going to be good leaders 20 years from now, too. You know, I mean, I, I do think we have a responsibility. I will disagree with you on that. <laughs> All right. No, I just think ultimately um, – yeah, no, I, I take your point. I think we do we do have a responsibility. We're, we may not be the ones who ultimately solve the problem, but we've all got to do our part to to build bridges because if, if the two, if, if members – we're all citizens of the United States. If we cannot talk to the other half of the country, um, we're not going to be able to move forward as a society. In fact, we could rip ourselves to, to shreds. So it's really important. Uh, other things we can do is, um, is is make an effort to either adopt reforms or to improve registration so that more people vote. One of the problems, that, one of the things driving polarization in this country is that because so few people – you know, less forty uh, percent of the electorate votes in midterm elections, fifty-eight, fifty-nine percent of the electorate votes in presidential elections. It's the people who are most intensely polarized who vote, and the people who don't vote are the ones who don't care that much about Democrats versus Republicans. The thing is, democracy needs those people. We need those people to vote because they actually help to elect less polarizing, more moderate candidates. That would also be a good thing. So more people voting. Would be really would help to depolarize our society. Another one other thing we could do is, um, uh, and this goes back to your social media question, is uh, go back to teaching civics in school, in high school, and even in college. Um, my colleague Bob Putnam has been has been really pushing this point. High schools, public schools have largely abandoned civic education, and so our citizens, the citizens we're producing, particularly those who were you know, I'm 50 years old. I never took a civics education course. So people my age and younger are out in the world without any knowledge of really how our democracy works or what our responsibilities are as citizens. And so that's something to think about as well. That was the only required course in my uh, high school. 
What's the yeah, it turns out that was probably a, a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's all I have. I think David has some more questions for you. Thanks so much well, for being on it. Your book is sure, fascinating, thanks for having me. and thank you for writing it. Yes, not not any long term questions, but I do want to give you some good news. I, I had, I'm a little younger than everybody else. I'm 46, and I had civics actually two semesters okay. out of three, American government. So it may be state to state. My son, who's going to graduate this year, he has to take uh, American government um, this coming semester, and so maybe it's a state to state thing. So that that's some good news. And um, I think you made a profound point about when you talked about that poll with. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Hillary Clinton, and, and I think of that those two gentlemen that wore the shirts that I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat, and that kind of just in a shirt or in a picture sums up a lot of our problem. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, no, that is those are dangerous levels of polarization. It's, the, it's that it's exactly that kind of thing that gets me thinking about Chile in the 1970s before the military coup, or Spain in the 1930s before the civil war i'm not saying that we're headed towards a military junta but it's but these levels of of polarization we're, we're we fear we feel ourselves closer to a foreign power even an enemy power than we do to the other party in our country uh, you know our own citizens that's a dangerous place to be yes most definitely um well i want to thank you for coming on but before we let you go of course how Democracies Die. We've tried to get everybody we can to read it that's interested in politics. But if people want to read other uh, of your writings, be it social media, be it articles, be it another book we don't know about, here's your chance to tell our listeners. Uh, well, most of my most of my work is much more boring political science. But if you're interested, <laughs> I wrote a book about eight years ago called Competitive Authoritarianism, which is about the, the sort of new forms of authoritarianism that exist in the world today, in the in the in the good old days during the Cold War, democracies died by by military coup. You know, like in Chile in 1973, the generals would seize power, but that's not how democracies die anymore. Usually, democracies die in the last three decades or so at the hands of elected prime ministers and presidents. And so, this book called Competitive Authoritarianism is uh, is about those kinds of regimes in the in, in the last 25, 30 years. But it's it's a more of a political science book. It's not 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 as readable as uh, as how democracies die. Hey, don't don't sell our listeners short. If they tune in to oh, listen sorry. to us yeah. every week, they may can take Look, it. My my mom read How Democracies <laughs> Die, but she didn't read she didn't read Competitive Authoritarian. So that's my that's my yardstick. <laughs> okay, well, Dr. Levitsky, we thank you for coming on the Cudsy Vine tonight. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. You too. All right. Dr. Stephen Levitsky, again, uh, How Democracies Die, Um, the way that the world of social media is going these days, you may can tune into his class uh, or his classes may be on there because it amazes me. You can actually get free Ivy League and and that type of university classes um, at your disposal. And who knows, Dr. Levitsky may teach one of those. And so there's probably other ways to – find out more about his um, thoughts and writings well um, we have a few more minutes and we've had these people that are these um, prognosticators analysts looking at uh, some of these senate races and we got a big new batch of polls and some of the polls really didn't match what we've been hearing and discussing one that stuck out for me was Tennessee Um, you know we've heard Phil Bredesen most popular candidate in the you know, recent history of Tennessee politics, yet a poll showed him actually losing to Marsha Blackburn, which I really don't feel is a top-shelf top candidate. Um, but that just shows just how hard the partisan swing is in Tennessee. Irregardless, even if that poll's a little wrong, it means Phil Bredesen's going to have a pretty tough election on his hand. Um, before I kind of ask you more questions, I just want to get y'all's thoughts. Tim, what what do you think about that Tennessee race in light of that poll? Well, I've I've uh, been watching eight races. I, I would have said ten, except that I now think that Montana and West Virginia look increasingly safe for the Democratic incumbents, at least right now. That being said, Tennessee, I've got kind of 
listed as a toss-up in the um, polling um, for the race. Bredesen, on average, is running about three-tenths of a point ahead of Blackburn. Uh, This thing is close as close can be. It's actually good news in a state like Tennessee that went very heavily for Trump. Even though Phil Bredesen was a very popular governor, he's been out of office for a while. Voters tend to forget. Blackburn's problem is is that she's not very well known statewide, um, mainly in in her district, which is the most Republican in the state. So I I got that thing a toss-up, David. Catherine, um, like I said, I was surprised by that poll. Um, What did you make of the Tennessee race? I was surprised, too, um, because of Bredesen's popularity, but I think it goes right back to what our guest was saying, that we're so polarized that people, even if they like him, and but they're Republicans, they're going to vote for the Republican. So I think it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be, a, a, as Tim said, it's going to be a tougher race than probably anybody expected, but I'm uh, optimistic about Bredesen's chances because of his name recognition as well mm-hmm. yeah i do think that in really in all these races it's going to have to be a wave that's going to have to uh, you know really kind of go against um historical trends well tim what race you talked about the 10 and i know we just don't have the time to get into all of them um but which one do you have besides tennessee possibly if, if that's the one uh which race is the next like most competitive, exciting, what have you? Probably right now we're talking about Arizona, where in compilation polling, uh, McSally is is running three-tenths of a point ahead of uh, Cinema. Um, The Republicans nominated the best candidate they, they could. The Democrats did the same. Arizona is going to be closely watched because it is turning purple. Uh, that is going to be the answer that the Knights measured by. I think, in a way, we might pull that thing out out there. But I'm watching Arizona to tell me a lot on election night. Yeah, um, C- Catherine, uh, if Arizona Republicans had elected Kelly Ward or Joe Arapai, do you think that race would have been completely off the table? (laughs) I don't know. I I have a hard time judging those things anymore, but I certainly would hope so. But Yeah. Well, well, Catherine, I'll go to you then with the next one. Um, Which race besides Tennessee and Arizona? Do what? Well, there's always Texas. I mean, this is an exciting race to watch. Mm-hmm. Great answer. Beto O'Rourke's gotten I've, a lot of attention. Give, give us your thoughts I on Texas. Seen the, I haven't seen any polls lately, but I do sort of think it's like, uh, uh, I mean, it's almost like uh, Kennedy and Nixon. Like, Beta O'Rourke is so... Uh, um, enthusiastic and positive and then you've got Eddie Munster there who's just like a grumpy old you know not not very likable so I think it's going to be interesting to see I haven't seen any polls lately what are the polls are they still really tight it's still like four points or or maybe a little less for um, Ted Cruz but to me I get the sense Texas is one of the harder states to poll. Has a lot of people move in, has a lot of cities. I just I think if you polled Nebraska and you polled Texas, I would say that no, no matter what the results were, I would just say, hey, the Nebraska poll is probably more correct because there's been less change in their population, unlike a Sunbelt state. Uh, Tim, would you kind of, what do you think of that assessment? 
Well, yeah, you you you're probably on to something there, but things are starting to tilt a little bit in Texas. It's a little bit different. Uh, Cruz's lead now has just been dropping all years down to compilation polling 3.2. It's moved into toss-up status, which I thought I would never see that this year. Uh, the Democrats really nominated an outstanding candidate there. Yeah, they uh, He's did. from the western part of the state where he can pull in some votes that we normally don't get. Uh, and he's visiting every county in that state. Uh, I, th- I think I think we got a race to watch. Plus, plus, oh, 14 or 15 percent of the voters are still undecided. And guys, you know, it, it isn't like Cruz is an unknown factor here. I mean, everybody in that state knows who he is. When you got that many undecided voters, and you're uh, incumbent senator is polling at forty four and a half percent. He's got a problem. I, I think I think yeah. Ted Cruz has a little problem. <laughs> and if there's a big wave on election night, he better look out. Yeah, I think I was. Uh, I heard in the past, say eight days, um, David Axelrod talk. I believe it was him. I may be giving him the wrong credit, but um, talk about how if you look at in this case, he was talking about congressional races. If you look at Connor Lamb and you look at Astacia Cortez, the representative-elect from New York, and you look at the representative-elect from the Boston area who was on the city commission, they're all very different. Um, one's much more moderate. One's, you know, uh, probably almost wrongly gets branded as farther left than she really is. And one's kind of a establishment politician, not so much – uh, moderate or, or liberal, that's not the thing. It's just that she's through the establishment. But all three of them are super dynamic individuals with their personality. And I think that may be what's going on here with Better O'Rourke. He's just a dynamic personality. It's not about um, policy so much. It's kind of like Jason Kander in Missouri. Jason Kander was pretty moderate, much more to the middle than uh, Better O'Rourke, but he was a dynamic personality. And that may be coming through. And if you think about Texas, where did we get the old have a beer with test for candidates? I, I've never understood exactly why that's, uh, you know, I might want to hang out with somebody, but I don't want to make them leader. But, you know, George Bush, he's the one that you want to have a beer with for whatever reason. They would say that. Uh, but if you look, even if people agree with Ted Cruz more on the issues, some, you know, longer term Texans, they probably like the guy that's skateboarding in the Whataburger parking lot. Um, Catherine, do you think that it's more of a the personality quality is helping better or more so than policy positions? Well, I think it's the personality. I also think it's the approach of, you know, going to every county, no matter what the, you know, political climate might be. I think that means a lot to people. I, you know, we we, um, we see that we certainly see that in Georgia, that you know people want to meet the candidate. So I think that helps. And um, but yeah, I think there's uh, personality uh, quotient that we don't we can't always um, quantify. But with him, it's with, with those two, it's so obvious because Beto O'Rourke is so um, you know sort of upbeat and enthusiastic, and Ted Cruz is just always looks cranky. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, and sometimes I can't, say, I can't describe it any other way, but <laughs> sorry. And just to play devil's mm. advocate, it, it, sometimes that doesn't matter because her, Hubert Humphrey was known as the happy warrior, and he ran against grumpy old Tricky Dick, and in 1968, uh, Grumpy beat Happy. No, so, I um, disagree. You know, I disagree. Hubert okay, well, ran against. He ran against Lyndon Johnson in 1968, but that's another story. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about who actually won think the think race. Yeah, guys, no. simply so, put, no, I, you want to know what? Rather have the happier person than the grumpy. Tim. Yeah, but simply put, you want to know what the race is in Texas. Ted Cruz's father was accused by Donald Trump <laughs> of being involved in the Kennedy assassination. And there Ted Cruz is, 
begging Trump to come down there and help. Based on that alone, David, where do you think this race stands? (laughs) I'll tell you this. I will say with 100% certainty, I know where Ted Cruz's pride stands, and that's at zero if he's willing to swallow (laughs) it. Uh, Especially, and and you forgot to mention all the things that, that, you know, kind of, um, really insulted his wife as well. Um, yeah, you know it was like seven. Well, I didn't mention that because Trump's insulted yeah. everybody's wife, including his own. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, but uh, but some people don't sit there and take it. That's the difference. I mean, some people, uh, you know, have their pride. I don't know if he. I don't know if he um, insulted Cindy McCain, but I know that John McCain through the rest of his life didn't just. Suck up to Donald Trump like Ted Cruz is that's doing. That's right. Now. He had some pride about yep. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's. Yeah. Well, um, I want to again thank Dr. Stephen Levitsky for coming on the show. And uh, we have plenty more Senate races to talk about in upcoming weeks. Yep. Until then, but the country, Vine. Good night, Good night guys. y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united. America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the